Well, hey, everybody, so great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. Just thrilled to have you along for the ride. And also, I need to give a shout out to my wife, who is right now running a triathlon. Right now. And as a good pastor wife, I am sure that she is tuning in via live stream. So I just appreciate, <laughs> not really, no. Anyway, we are at the end of a series called Who is God? Uh, that explores what God has revealed to us about himself as well as how he wants to relate to us through the authors of both the Old and the New Testaments of the Bible. And to get us going with our conversation for today, this one last conversation, because now we've totally discovered everything about who God is. Just kidding. I could, well, we keep going a different title. But anyway, um, I want to begin or remind you of the observation that sort of sparked this entire series for me. It goes like this. Uh, many people have toxic expectations of God. And I think that's a really big problem because honestly, expectations matter. They make a real difference in the real world. I mean, I have many friends um, who've long struggled to develop a relationship with God because of the expectations they have of God. Uh, some who grew up in the church have actually even left their faith entirely due to these misplaced expectations. And I've had a lot of conversations over the years with people like this, but I think the most memorable example for me is someone uh, that I met in college. He's actually my college roommate. He's a guy named John. And, and over the two years that we lived together at the University of Michigan, we talked a lot about God, which is fascinating because at the time he said that he didn't believe in God. Um, he had grown up in a small town on Long Island, not far from New York City, in what could only be described as a professional church family. Uh, what I mean by that is his mom was the church secretary. So it's no exaggeration to say that they were at church every time the doors were open. He would say they were the ones that unlocked the church and the ones that locked the church at the end of the day. Well, early in his junior year of high school, his youth pastor challenged him to read the entire Bible, like Genesis to Maps. Is that a terrible pastor joke? Anyway. The youth pastor uh, said to this youth group, listen, um, this is undeniably the most important book that has ever uh, been written, and it can actually teach us everything that we need to know about who God is. And, and John was an ambitious, intelligent, motivated high school junior, and so he accepted the challenge and read the Bible cover to cover over the next seven months. And as he read the Bible cover to cover over the next seven months, he took notes because I don't know if you've ever tried reading the whole Bible, but um, you'll probably have a few questions that come up along the way, right? And so John's strategy was, I'll bring all my questions to my youth pastor after I've done his assignment of reading the whole Bible and get some answers to my questions. Um, and so John had some questions. <laughs> uh, questions like, well, like this. If the Bible is really for us today, then why does some of it seem so backwards? <laughs> You're like, I've had that thought, but I've never said it out loud, Right. Or how about this one? Um, how could God ever have condoned the way women were treated in the Old Testament of the Bible? And then one more just for fun. Um, does God really want us to follow all the rules found in the Bible or just some of the rules? I remember John saying to me, um, well, if God wants us to follow all the rules, then I'm not sure I want anything to do with God. And as you can imagine, John's youth pastor had absolutely no idea to do what to do with those questions other than to affirm good things like the Bible is God's word and that it can be trusted. And, and John told me that he walked out of that meeting in the church basement that day having decided, well, honestly, that he wasn't sure what to do with God. He said to me, you know, if God is really that far behind us culturally and ethically speaking, then he said, I'm not sure I want anything to do with him. 
Moreover, he said, you know, as I was thinking about it, the Bible actually explains why some religions seem so backwards. And he was like super confident in his conclusions. Until the day he moved in with me. <laughs> and you can imagine he was shocked when he learned that not only did I believe that the Bible had something to tell us about God today, but that I also believed, and this is huge, a big idea for today, that God is ahead of us. And, and that whoever we are, and whatever we've done, he invites us to take the next right step forward. And, and I'll never forget the day we're sitting there uh, in our dorm room and John said, you know, where in the world did you get this idea? He goes, that, that feels like a really great thing, but where in the world did you get the idea? And I smiled and looked back and I said, I got it from <clears throat> the Bible, <laughs> right? And he was stunned. I mean, as I mentioned, he had read the Bible. So he asked me to explain and I did. Now, here's the thing. Um, I wanted to start there today because I don't think my former college roommate, John, is the only one who's ever had this experience. I think that the idea that God um, is culturally regressive is actually fairly common in our world. But here's the thing. It's completely wrong. And with the rest of our time today, I'm going to make an argument as to why I believe that to be the case from the Bible. And so to that end, uh, for the next few minutes, I want to show you an incredibly helpful way to read the challenging parts of the Bible. It's actually a helpful way to read all the Bible, but especially the challenging parts, the parts that you read and you think to yourself, boy, that doesn't seem like something God would say or something that God would do. Uh, the, the parts that maybe make you wonder in the quiet spaces in your mind and heart, like, is the violent God of the Old Testament like a totally different guy than the loving God of the New Testament? Are they like different deities? Uh, the answer is no, but I'll, I'll show you what I mean. So let's start by exploring an incredibly violent passage from the Old Testament just for fun. You with me? No. Okay. Well, we're going to do it anyway. Um, it's the kind of passage that's generally used to argue that God is somehow behind us. But stay with me. I want to show you something else at work in this text, something that I find simultaneously surprising and compelling, something that I'm actually convinced can help us better understand who God is. Uh, so the passage in question is found in Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible. And Exodus contains the story of how God rescued the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt and how he gave them a set of laws around which to organize their life together. But you, know, you got to remember this. Um, as we enter the text, the original audience isn't us. At the time they were rescued, the nation of Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years, and they had no written text of their nation's history. Consequently, at that time, at the time they were rescued, each of these children of this man named Israel would have thought like an Egyptian. And they would have talked like an Egyptian. And wait for it. It's coming. They would have walked like an Egyptian. Man, every time I bust out this joke, it just crushes. It's so good, right? I've been waiting all week for that. Anyway... Randy is going to have some PTSD after this joke. So if anyone's a counselor, he's going to need some help. Anyway, um, after rescuing the children of Israel, here's one of the stranger things that God tells them. He says, if there is a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. You're like, that's very detailed, right? In other words, God says to these newly rescued children of Israel, a people that he's going to set apart for himself, he says to them, listen, if you get hit, then you should hit back. 
okay? And that seems simple enough, but if we're honest, it also seems a little bit backwards. I mean, we would never allow this today. I mean, how could this ever have been God's plan for his people? Think about it. Someone accidentally kills someone's firstborn son, and that someone is supposed to kill someone else's firstborn son in retaliation? It's like barbaric. It's backwards. But you see, there is another way to read these verses, Because we have to remember Exodus 21, the chapter where this passage is found, deals with issues surrounding personal injury and property damage. But it deals with issues surrounding personal injury and property damage 3,500 years ago, which is a bit of time in the past, right? And so while the idea of taking an eye for an eye or a life for a life seems really primitive to us, it wasn't to them. See, in ancient Egypt, if someone killed your cow, it was a cultural expectation that you would extract revenge on that person. And revenge always came with interest. And so in what was an incredibly progressive move, God told his people, if someone kills your cow, then you can kill one of their cows. Not two of their cows, not a cow and a camel and a goat and a llama, which happened to be in the wrong place on earth, but you know what I'm saying, right? All that to say, at the time it was given, the eye for an eye command was another way of saying that the punishment needed to fit the crime. So if you think about it, God actually gave this law to lessen violence in the lives of his people. Like for human culture, this was a massive step forward because it created a legal barrier that would prevent the escalation of violence. Now, To be fair, did God's people have a long way to go after receiving this command? Yes. But nonetheless, in Exodus, we see God illuminating a first step. And it's a step that, honestly, we can't see if we fail to consider the original audience. Okay, so now what we're going to do is fast forward hundreds of years to the time of Jesus, probably 1,500 years or so. Because in Jesus' day, something terrible had happened to the way this eye-for-an-eye command was understood. Because in Jesus' day, people would have some sort of violence or injustice done to them, and they would justify their vengeful actions by saying, hey, eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-a-tooth, that's what God told us through Moses, I'm just doing to them what they did to me. In other words, the same verse that God intended to lessen violence was being used to amplify violence, which obviously is a big problem. You say, well, I wonder what Jesus did with that problem. I'm so glad you asked. He actually confronts this abuse directly. And when he does, he shows the children of Israel the fullness of God's intent for his people. Said differently, he invited them to take another step forward in their day. Here's what Jesus said to them. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Yeah, well, they totally, that's Mount Sinai, Moses, sure. We heard that, yep. But I tell you, he says, in other words, that was then, this is now. Like, I've come to show you the heart of God. And so, he says, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, Hand over your coat as well. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, to be clear, in this passage, Jesus is not inviting his followers to be human doormats, even though it can look that way. Each of the actions he suggests, this turning the other cheek, giving him the tunic, going the extra mile, right? They were all part of Jesus' instructions to his followers to use nonviolent resistance 
as a way to confront things that needed to be changed. It peacefully confronted injustice. Notice, Jesus then doesn't tell his followers to seek an abusive form of revenge, which, as you know, is brilliant because aggressive forms of revenge never really fix anything. Now, all that to say that what was a step forward for the people of the Exodus became a step backwards for the people in Jesus' day. And and this is key. We need to remember, God didn't change his mind. In each case, he was simply ahead of people, inviting them to move forward. In the days of the Exodus, he was simply accommodating his message to their capacity to receive it. Okay, so here's another example from an Old Testament book called Deuteronomy. Um, And Deuteronomy is basically a speech. It's a record of a speech given by Moses, Israel's leader who led them out of Egypt, um, shortly before Moses' death. So they're right on the edge of the promised land. Moses is about to pass. He's about to hand the mantle of leadership over to Joshua. And he takes this opportunity to remind the people of what God has done for them. And in it, he also... um, He also reminds the audience how God wants them to live. And so check out what Moses says to the people like midway through the speech. And buckle up, it's a pretty wild ride. So here's what he says. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, like that's all kind of assumed that's going to happen. If you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. And all the ladies are like, I already don't like this. Nope, don't lie. Oh, it gets worse. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when she was captured. Okay, that's weird. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. Thus saith the Lord. Oh, it's not even done yet. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. So hang with me. We read this today and we think, dude, that's so, I made a list for you. Check it out. That is so primitive, barbaric, sexist, demeaning, degrading, and wrong. Can I get an amen, ladies? Yeah, right. And those adjectives may be too gracious. Like we wonder how anybody who respects women wouldn't think this was ridiculous. But once again, as you may have guessed, there's a bit more going on here than meets the eye. Uh, This passage describes the rules surrounding something historians call the spoils of war. It was common practice in the ancient Near East to place some expectations on victorious armies. Uh, People were constantly going to battle with one another, and some were winning and some were losing. And so that makes sense. Like, what are the rules for the people who win? Uh, And according to the conventional wisdom of that day, whomever won got to take whatever had belonged to their now-dead adversaries for themselves. Animals, jewelry, tents, food, slaves, and of course, wives. And they could do with them whatever they wanted. Items and people could be sold and discarded or abused as they saw fit. So so we have to understand, it was into that world and that worldview that this instruction was introduced. Like, Like typically in that day, if a man wasn't pleased with a woman whom he had won in battle, he was free to send her away into a culture where she had no rights or protections, a culture in which she would be seen as damaged goods. And as a result, someone who was sent away in that way would often had no option but to turn to prostitution for survival. 
But notice in this passage, it forbids sending a rejected woman away. It was a significant deviation from the cultural norms regarding the spoils of war. Like when a man took a woman that he had found attractive into his home, that meant he was going to provide for her. Things like shelter and protection and food and clothes. God says, you know, you, you need to let her shave her head and trim her nails and, and change her clothes. And that allowed her to take on the marks of mourning in the ancient world. I mean, she had suffered a horrific loss. So she was given time to properly grieve. Moreover, when she was taken as a wife, she became a full member of the new household, like a member with responsibilities and rights and positions. I'm telling you, like, this idea was incredibly revolutionary at the time it was given. Again, 3,500 years ago. What was shocking and offensive to us today was a groundbreaking step forward in the ancient world. I mean, we look back on this passage and obviously, thankfully, we're like, what is going on here? But see, the original audience saw it as a radical step in the right direction. Because at the center of this instruction was the simple affirmation that women were people and not possessions. And so once again, you see God accommodating his message to the capacity of his audience so that they could receive it. And he met them in that space and he invited them to take the next right step forward. In other words, he was ahead of them all along the way, leading them one step at a time into a brighter future. And when he engaged them for the first time in the Exodus, right, human culture had gone completely off the rails. So he had to meet them in that moment and begin to teach them a better way forward. Okay, so years ago I was at a conference and it was one of those, those times where I found myself absolutely captured by one of the presenters and he was talking about this topic, just that God is radically ahead of all of us, even today, pulling us into a future that he has for us. Um, and, and he explained this concept in a way I will never forget. And I wanted to share what he shared because it's just awesome. Um, unfortunately, I don't remember his name. So smart guy said this a long time ago. Anyway, he said this. If you want to get what God's doing here, imagine this. Imagine that parents of teenagers schedule a cruise for their 25th anniversary. And you're all like, that sounds lovely. Yes. And before they left... Uh, they asked their kids to clean out the garage at some point while they were gone because the garage was chaotic. Can you imagine a house with teenagers, a garage being chaotic, right? Well, uh, so they go on their trip and they have an absolutely wonderful time touring the Caribbean and they return to their hometown rested and sun-kissed. And as they turn onto their street and they're ready to be reunited with their beloved offspring, they notice that there are more cars than usual parked along the street, both sides, right? Some are not even parked in the right direction. It, it almost looks like new drivers are parking along the road. Say, well, that's, that's kind of strange, and it's a little bit late for a garage sale. So what's going on? And then as they pull into their driveway, they realize that there's a gathering of teenagers at their home. There's a gathering of hundreds of teenagers at their home. And uh, in fact, it's more than a gathering. It's, it's more like a, 
Well, I'll, I'll let you use your imagination, right? I mean, there were teenagers everywhere, uh, in the garage consuming illegal substances, uh, teenagers in every bedroom, um, how shall I phrase it, not practicing the boundaries they learned at youth group. We'll leave it there, right? Um, other teenagers are in the backyard and they're jumping off the roof, doing cannonballs into the pool. And finally, there's a DJ spinning vinyl, which is kind of cool because it's back, right? But a DJ spinning vinyl in the living room and there's subwoofers shaking all of the furniture. And so not surprisingly, the mom and dad, sun-kissed and well-rested, race into the house. They don't even bring their luggage, right? They race into the house looking everywhere for their children. And when they find their children, children, they grab them by the lapels and say, why didn't you clean out the garage while we were gone? <laughs> right? That's not what they would say, right? Some of you are like, that's right, you're the garage. You know, right? Yeah. I mean, you might say, well, there's some bigger issues that need to be dealt with first, right? So the, the, the guy that was presenting said this, he goes, when God intersects with creation, during the period of the Exodus, things had gone completely off the rails. In fact, things were so far gone that the children of Israel wouldn't have been capable of processing the fullness of how God wanted them to live. And so, like a good parent, God starts with the most important stuff first. To leverage the illustration, uh, he tells his children to get the extra teenagers out of the house and to tell the DJ that the party is over and he is no longer called upon to drop the beat, right? It's like, and so they begin to sort of pick up the pieces slowly and deliberately and eventually, maybe like a week later, they might get around to talking about the fact that the garage hadn't been cleaned up, <laughs> like Maybe. And, and I'm telling you, this is why it's so important for us to understand where we are in the story of redemption when we open the pages of the Bible. Like, if we drop in with the correct expectation that God is always ahead of people, including us, and inviting those ancient people and inviting us to take the next right step forward, then we can actually see the Bible for what it is a collection of radically progressive books that were way ahead of their time. I'm telling you when, when people say to me, you know, how do you know there's a God? I, of course, that, I was a debater. I'm like, that's like, you know, like throwing meat to a dog is crazy. I'm like, oh, man, so where do I start, right? But, but for me, one of the arguments always comes back to the Bible, and that always surprises people because, again, they see the Bible is so regressive. And I said, when you understand how insanely ahead of time the teachings and the scriptures were when they were given. And it is powerful evidence of divine intervention in human history. Intervention of a God who wants to us to know him as a heavenly father who is with us and for us and ahead of us. A God who only gives rules to people who already are his children. Because he loves us. He loves us, all of us, and he wants us to thrive. Okay, so that brings us uh, to the end of this series. And we get to actually conclude it today in a pretty special way. Um, for thousands of years, Christians have gathered around tables 
in rooms like this or in literally dining rooms set with bread and wine, bread and juice, to remember the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. They, they come and gather to celebrate, again, the God who's with us and for us and ahead of us, a God who wants to teach us a better way to live. And, uh, and so in just a moment, you'll have the opportunity to go to one of the stations. They'll be along the front of the room and the back of the room. I'll have the band join me on stage now as well. Um, and they're they're going to play a song and give you some space just to sort of consider your heart, uh, to maybe remember the resurrection, to open your hands and open your heart and say, God, I'm, just, I'm here, I'm listening, and I'm thankful. Uh, and then when you're ready, you can come up to the front or again in the back and take a piece of bread representing the body of Jesus that was broken for you and dip it into the juice, remembering the blood of Jesus that was spilled in order to ratify a new covenant, a new relationship between people and God, a relationship not based on our goodness, but based on his goodness, a relationship that begins by grace through faith. So on the night he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, Jesus took two common elements, bread and wine, and he pointed his followers to a new meaning. He said, whenever you do this, whenever you break the bread, whenever you drink the wine, I want you to remember me. So the band will play. Uh, you're welcome to come to the table, and then I'll return at the end, and I'll close our time in prayer.
pray for us. Um, but once again, this week, if you've come and you just need some prayer, you want to talk to someone, uh, we have some volunteers that will be under the screen right over here that would love to meet with you and, and pray with you. Um, for the rest of us, we'd love to invite you to stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we gather to celebrate, to celebrate you, who you are, what you've done. We thank you for the incredible way that your story has been preserved. A story of grace, a story of hope, a story of redemption, a story that resonates at the deepest levels of our souls. Thank you as well that 2,000 years ago you sent your one and only son as one of us to walk this earth and to show us the way and the truth and the life to show us your heart. I pray that you would give us courage as we seek to live each day like Jesus, to follow his example, to allow him to be king. So we thank you. We bless you. We celebrate you. And we love you. It's in the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to your friends. We'll see you back next week.